Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. I'm broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to Season 3 of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for allowing us to continue to celebrate and support great writing and serve our wonderful community. Today, we'll be hearing a conversation between CBC Television's Adrian Harewood and Youssef Salam, author, activist, and a living embodiment of both the brutality of America and the Western world more broadly when it comes to the systemic violence and contempt shown to African Americans, but also a living embodiment of a kind of transcendent clarity that comes from surviving hell and coming through that horror with a certainty of purpose that can and has changed the world for the better. It was Gandhi who once challenged us to become the change we seek in the world, and we're about to get a glimpse of what that maxim looks like in action. There's a tendency to point to the discrimination and racism we see in America and to shrug off the realities here in Canada. And while today's podcast covers what is perhaps a specifically American story, there's much to be done here at home. And just as we are hearing more and more from Indigenous voices that we need to focus on the truth before we approach reconciliation, we are, I hope, approaching a similar critical mass when it comes to tackling, or at the very least acknowledging, the systemic oppression working against people of color right here and right now. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street. And wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Now, let's turn things over to CBC's Adrian Harewood, a longtime friend of the festival and a recent addition to Carleton University's Faculty of Journalism, for his conversation with Youssef Salam on his profound new book, Better Not Bitter, Living on Purpose in the Pursuit of Racial Justice. Yusuf Salam's life changed forever when he was 15 years old and charged with a heinous crime he did not commit. He would later be convicted along with four other African-American and Latino boys of the brutal rape of a white woman in New York's Central Park in April 1989. The boys became known as the Central Park Five. They were sentenced to six to 15 years in jail in a notorious case defined by race that garnered national and international headlines. Salam ended up serving seven years, nearly seven years in prison, and was eventually released on parole. However, after new evidence came to light demonstrating that Salam and the Central Park Five had nothing to do with the crime, they were exonerated and had their convictions vacated. The five boys, who were now men, sued the city of New York and reached a $40 million settlement. The harrowing ordeal of Salam and the Central Park Five was later told in documentary form by Ken Burns and in an acclaimed award-winning film by Ava DuVernay called When They See Us. Yusuf Salam has just written a memoir of the story of his life uh, and, and the story of the now exonerated five called Better Not Bitter, Living on Purpose in the Pursuit of Racial Justice. And Yusuf Salam joins me now. Yusuf, it's a delight to, to meet, meet you. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. And thank you for having me. And, and Yusuf, congratulations on, on the book. And, you know, I wanted to begin by asking first, you know, why did you want to write this book? Why did you need to write this book? You know, I felt it necessary after people knew the story of the collective 
you know, who we are now known as the Exonerated Five, I felt it necessary to really tell people how I got through what it was that they see as this miraculous journey. And so I had to interrogate myself. It wasn't enough for me to say I'm a survivor and I'm standing up for myself. But more importantly, I think it was the nuggets of wisdom that helped other people and will help other people in the future to really um, find the purpose, find that value in, in, in the tragedies that we experience, right? Life has a way of chiseling and creating us into, into survivors. And as we understand that, then we really can rise to the challenge. We can take anything that is thrown at us and say, this is going to build me, right? And so in my book, I talk about growing through something as opposed to just going through something. You know, once you realize that you are born on purpose, you realize that you have a purpose. You realize that just like the people behind the walls, the elders told me, psychosocially, you have to matter, right? And so if you matter and you know that you matter and the society knows that you matter, you have the greatest opportunity to provide the best value to that society. The, the process of writing is not easy. It's not an easy one. It's not easy to mine your interior self. It's not easy to, to visit traumatic times in your life. I'm wondering what the writing and, and kind of having to excavate some of these memories, what was the writing like for you? Oh, I got to tell you, it was tremendously liberating. It was um, a labor of love. And labor, yes, it was laborious. It was something that, that you had to go back and do a deep dive into. Um, quite similar, I would say, to telling, the, telling our story with regards to when they see us and also with regards to the Central Park Five documentary by Ken Burns. And the reason why I mention that is because on the one hand, you want to be able to tell your story. And I tell people this all the time. You know, I'm a motivational speaker. I've been speaking for over 20 years now, but... I've actually been a professional motivational speaker since 2015. And what I've been able to understand about that process is that every single time I get on stage and I tell my story, I heal again. That dynamic of being able to release the pain, the hurt, the trauma, the indelible scars back into the world, back into the universe, gives you the opportunity to regain the collective hug that you need from society. And it's a tremendous thing. It's, 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 a, it's a, spirit, a spiritual thing, a very sacred thing that happens. You know, um, we very rarely get the opportunity to tell our stories, especially men. men. Men very rarely get the opportunity, or I should say use the opportunity. I shouldn't say get the opportunity. We very rarely use the opportunity to tell our stories, to, you know, um, connect ourselves with the greatest thing, which is the, the creator, right? Knowing that the value is there and encouraging each and every one of us to move forward and not just move forward in a, in a small way, but use your story to magnify what it is that you're going through, because then you can grow through it. You can literally look at the circumstance and say to yourself, wow, I'm a better person because of this, right? What happens when you are in, the, in, in, in hell, makes all the difference. You have to keep on walking. You have to keep on moving forward. But it makes all of the difference for you to be in that space and, you know, tell your story 
and be vulnerable at the same time, right? There's a huge amount of vulnerability because who wants to tap back into the emotion of having been run over by the spike wheels of justice at 15 years of age? And more importantly, who wants to be able to tap that emotion into the Sankofa moment of realizing that this is part of the black experience, that experience that we've been having 400 plus years now? That's a really, really powerful thing. You talk about the experience of writing being liberating, that, that, that it, was, it was cathartic. Yeah. Um, but I would imagine that there must have been parts of the story, you know, the, the harrowing story, that were perhaps more challenging to get at than others. Did you find that? Like, were there certain parts where you maybe had to pause or, or take, a, take a break, take a couple of days to compose yourself before you could actually approach the writing of it? I think so. I think that that's a very accurate um, truth that happens all the time. Because if you want to tell your story and be very honest, be vulnerable, um, be transparent, right? You have to be able to, you, like a lot of times when I tell my story on stage, I can sometimes have out-of-body experiences where I'm looking at myself on stage telling the story, or I'm talking about this person, Yusuf Salam, who went through this tragedy. But then to be back in the time and space of that moment, you know, there was one moment I remember quite early on, I was standing in front of an audience and I was describing to them coming out of the, the um, transportation vehicle that took us from Harlem Valley to, I'm sorry, took us from um, Spofford to Harlem Valley. It was there with, uh, with Antron McCray. And all of a sudden I was there. I was, I, was, I was transported back in time. I was walking out of the car. I had the shackles on my waist going down to my ankles and my feet were shackled and my hands were shackled and my waist was shackled. And I'm looking up at the prison and the prison vibrates with the bodies in the window telling me that they're going to get us. And I'm thinking that this is the place that Antron is going to stay. And this is my stop. And, the, and the, the horror story of that moment is important, right? It's important not necessarily just for me to be able to revisit it and relive it, but also to tell people the why, right? The Central Park Jogger case, it becomes what I call a love story between God and his people because it's a case that's very visible. It's a case that we can point to and say, this is not an anomaly, anomaly. This is systemic. We're not looking at an episode and saying, oh, you know, this is just, you know, one incident where we made a mistake. No, I'm going to show you through this case how important it is for us to do our jobs and do it well, right? Because this is part of sacredness, right? The sacred journey of being able to say, why am I here? And if you find yourself on the side of law, stating that you have to be a person who is upholding the law right that is a very powerful thing on the side of every cop car in, in in the nation we see the words to serve and protect in some variation in new york they go a step further and add the words courtesy professionalism and respect imagine if we had a police department that was doing their job at the highest level that means that there would be less crime that means that the testament to the value that they provide would be 
a, 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 a very powerful, harmonious relationship between the people that are being served and the people who are protecting them. We have a very disruptive thing going on right now, right? And so you look at my story and you get the opportunity to realize that we have a problem. And we have a huge problem because with regards, and I'm, and I'm going to use my case again, if you look at the Central Park Jagger case and the, and the intricacies of it, you have the family members and the supporters out there very, very early on saying that they didn't do this. You got the wrong people. You need to be out there looking for the real perpetrator. And because the system got stuck with the mistake of thinking that we were the ones who did it, they, they, they judged us by the color of our skin and not the content of our character, right? They allowed for the real perpetrator to continue to commit more crime, ultimately killing one of his last victims, uh, Lourdes Gonzalez. And that name should be remembered because she was a pregnant young woman who was in her home with, her with two of her children. And Matias Reyes, the real perpetrator of the crime, comes into her home, ultimately rapes her. And because his MO, his modus operandi was your eyes or your life at this moment, he wasn't giving his victims a choice. He was killing them. And so he killed Lourdes Gonzalez. She could have been alive today. Her husband could have been enjoying her today and her unborn child that died also in the process. And the rest of their children would have been a whole family unbroken. But the system got stuck with that mistake. And I truly believe that when we look at it from that perspective, we get the opportunity to realize how important it is to get it right. How awful it is that we are living through an experience where people are calling for the defunding of police, where people are calling for the abolition of the system. But that defunding and abolition is necessary because we need to build a new system with the bricks that are demolished from where we were to where we want to go. And where we want to go, I think, is the representation of the kaleidoscope of the human family. When we read the document that created this country that says, we the people, when we pause and understand historically that black and brown bodies were not considered whole human beings, we get the opportunity to really truly understand what's at stake. There's never been reform to that document. And so the 13th Amendment is allowed to live, creating a new slavery through the prison industrial complex because we are not looking at the systemic issues that we are experiencing. And I think the case, the Central Park Jagger case, the story of the Central Park Five and the struggles that we went through in order to become the exonerated five tells a really impactful story and narrative that's over and above and beyond the individual experiences that we've had. But it's important for us to tell it from that perspective so that we get an understanding about what this truly is. Yusuf, you know, 35, it's about 35 years ago, I was 15 years old. And, and you know, I remember, I remember the time well. I, I think it was when I was 15 that I had my first kiss. Yeah. You know, it was 15 when I was, I was playing soccer and I was playing in, 
in the jazz band at school and doing choir and looking forward to my future and and and, and ima- or rather imagining the future that that I would have. I, I was you know thinking about university and thinking about about travel. Um, when you were 15 years old, you were effectively you were effectively kidnapped from your life. Yeah. You you were kidnapped from your life and you were transported into an alien world. Yeah. Uh, you got caught up in this this nightmare where you became a pariah. You became, you know, one of the lead characters in this horror story. You know, I'm wondering, like, take us back to April, you know, 20th, 1989. You're 15 years old. And then all of a sudden you are becoming, you know, one of the, you know, pariahs of New York. What, like, tell, tell us, take us back to that time and, and give us a sense as to what's going through your mind when you realize, you know, things are really spinning out of control for you. You know, I think it's important to begin that story or that part of the story with understanding that a child is born and that child is born in one of the greatest nations in the world in the nation that we are born in there's this notion that this is the land of the free the home of the brave the land of opportunity this is the place where dreams become reality and in that in that um how do i how do i describe it um, in that idea I want to call it an idea everyone who is born outside of the tragedy of the creation of this place called America they ultimately believe that we are in a in a good place we are in a better place we're in a place where everyone can dream Everyone can have opportunity. And then something happens. You get awakened to the American nightmare. You wanted the American dream. And you get awakened to the nightmare. And you want really for that nightmare to just be a moment and not life, not truth. But you realize that this is America. This is the America that your mother had told you about. This is the America that she warned you about, telling you that she was born in the Jim Crow South. This is the America that she told you about where she said, as she was a child, describing a moment where she had to turn off the lights in the vehicle that they were riding in and run through the dark in the South because they were told that the Klan was out looking for blood. It is the most indescribable moment of fear of this dichotomy of of, of what Dr. James Baldwin says when he talks about being relatively conscious and being in a state of rage all the time. This duality that we find ourselves in. I was being raised to understand that I had purpose and I had value. Here it was, we were right in the middle of the margins of life, pushed to the margins. And we were being told and made to believe that we were worth nothing, not by our parents and our family, but by the system. The system made us to believe that we were worth nothing, 
The system made us to believe that we, our greatest aspiration was to be dead or in jail before we reached the age of 21. And here it was, at 15 years of age. I didn't escape that fate. I was headed to jail before I reached the age of 21. It wasn't a thing that I thought as deeply about at the moment because in my mind, I thought that the system worked. In my mind, I said, I'm going to go to the cops and go with them and tell them what I saw and I'll be home before my mom gets back. Imagine my naivety that allowed me to emerge back through the womb of America seven years later. Corey Wise, who was with me, who wasn't even a suspect, who was beaten into making false confessions. He comes back home 13 plus years later. It's the, it's the thing that we don't wish on anyone, but happens to many in the black and brown community. And it's the most tragic of stories because many of us can't rebound from that. Once that, once that system gets its hands on you, you ultimately succumb. If you're not strong enough, if you're not given value back enough, you're being told that you're worth nothing and then you begin to move throughout your life like you're a mistake. And the absolute opposite of that is the truth, that you're worth everything. And I think that that part is important because even going through the prison industrial complex, you realize that you have to begin to imagine a different future for yourself. You know, Better Not Bitter is my description of that. It's my narration of that. It's the, it's the how. It's the technique. It's, the, it's, the giving, it's you giving yourself permission again to be the greatest thing that God created you to be. You're a walking miracle. And I think it's important to see self as that because you give yourself the ultimate opportunity of grace and mercy and all things great, as opposed to what the system says. The system wants you to believe that you are supposed to be on the bottom. The system wants you to believe that your greatest aspiration is to be a slave, modern slavery. And, and, and the antithesis of that is the greatest truth. You talk, Yusuf, about your naivete. You, you, I guess, had gotten word that, 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 that you were wanted or, or, or that the police wanted to talk to you. And, and so you decided, you took the initiative, you decided to go to the police precinct. Uh, your friend, Corey Wise, uh, being the loyal friend that he is, uh, that he was, uh, accompanied you there. And then all of a sudden you get caught up in this thing which in the end results in your going to jail for nearly nearly seven years. In, in those kind of early hours when you are being interrogated by the police, how are you making sense of things? What, what, what's going through your mind if, if, you, if you can even, if you're even able to kind of understand it all? You know, the craziest thing about this story is that this story is depicted, I think, in many profound ways through media and through movies and things like that. Perhaps the greatest way that we can understand this is to revisit The Matrix Part 1, where Neo is 
completely um, fighting against the truth, right? The truth is that we are in a construct. And I'm not talking about it from like this hocus pocus way or the movie way and all of that stuff. But I am talking about, you know, me not realizing the historical truth of what and, and who America is, right? Howard Zinn wrote a book called The History of America. I mean, I'm the... Um, People's History. The People's History of America. United States, yeah. Right. Beautiful, beautiful book, right? Beautiful, powerful book in terms of the narration because, you know, if you don't know the truth, what happens is that you 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 are born into this country and you're being told um, this flag represents you and therefore your allegiance is to the flag. And you stand up. And you pledge allegiance to the flag. And you don't realize that the way that America came about was through pillage, was through murder, was through um, really, really vile acts. And America wants us to now forget that. And I'm talking about even now, even today, there's, this, there's a push for that truth not to be told in schools. There's a push for the 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 truth of, of of who we are not to be dealt with and i think that there's a fear and the fear is that america believes that once the truth comes out and people wrestle with it that the people who were victimized will become the people who victimize or who 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 um who assault who are the assailants and the absolute opposite of that has always been the truth especially with black and brown people right you look, at, you look at black and brown people and you realize that we are some of the most spiritual loving people, that people were told not to go into uh, the, the ghettos of the world or America, that if you went there, that you had to go in groups. And if you and if you um, happen to find yourself there, um, you know, try to make sure that you 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 operate a certain way and then. That was the neighborhoods being gentrified or gentrifying, the process of gentrifying the neighborhood. And then the neighborhoods became gentrified and the neighborhoods became beautified and people moved in. And all of a sudden, people found out that they were lied to, that the children of former slave owners were lied to and that the children of former slaves were lied to. That you can find harmony and balance, that the truth gives you the opportunity to reconcile with the past, you know, it gives you the ultimate opportunity to reconcile with the past. But at the same time as well, it gives you the opportunity to forge your way forward, to figure out how do we move in the newness of what we know so that we can become our best selves. In America, black and brown people have been playing a tangle with the system. We don't, we don't own the narrative of the, of the, of the, of the music being played. But we are definitely participating in that dance. And unfortunately, we've been pushed. We've been pushed. If we go two steps forward, we're pushed five steps back. If we go one step forward, we're pushed two steps back. There seems like there's progress, there's give and take, but the take is so much more than the give. Where is the real success? The success is for you to forget the truth of where we are and what we have to deal with. But I think the true success is for us to remember in a Sankofa way, 
who we are and where we are, what we are to do with this moment. It gives us the ultimate opportunity for us to be great again. You know, Yusuf, in, in your book, you say, and I quote, it was fear of black and brown bodies that led America to, to damn the five of us for the false evidence linking us to a crime to be taken as fact. Was it really fear, though, or, or was it hatred? Was it contempt? Was it racism? So I think, I think if we look at things on the surface, we give it different names. But once we do deep dives into what the truth is, we realize that ultimately all of that is attaching yourself to spiritual wickedness, to believe that the spiritual wickedness that you are enjoying is valued, right? And what I mean by that is there's, there's a verse in, in the Quran that says something like, um, the devil has made their deeds seem fair. And I'm talking about like all people, right? There's people in, in, in the Muslim community back in the days that would say, well, let me liberate the money from the bank and I'm going to call it a halal stick up. I mean, once you attach yourself to the lowest vibrations, you never get the opportunity to really see things for what they are. But as soon as you get out of the gravitational pull of everything pulling you down, now you can see that 30,000 view that you need to be able to understand. And so on the one hand, yes, it's racism. Yes, it's white supremacy, white male dominance. Yes, it's hatred. Yes, it's all of those things. But when we look at that in the context of the world, we realize that in the world, oppression shows up in a different way. Oppression doesn't look like black people being oppressed by white skin. Oppression looks like people who look like each other oppressing each other. And so that's why I say that it's, a, it's, a, it's the attachment of this spiritual wickedness that there has to be someone on the bottom. The truth is that we live in a world of abundance. We don't live in a world where there's lack. They want you to believe that there's lack. So therefore, everyone can, cannot share in the ability to, to be great to be valued, to be worth something. And all of us are worth something. All of us. We give ourselves the ultimate opportunity of success when we recognize the value in each of us. But as soon as we say, I'm better than you, we've attached ourselves to the lowest vibration of evil that will allow for our deeds to be fair-seeming, right? They tell us that we are... Uh, Minorities, and I'm going to use that term, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to ne necessarily just kind of attach it to that that truth, but where the legal term minority, the the um, the connotation and denotations of those are two very very different things. On the one hand, you're talking about a people who have no power, or who have little power, collectively. On the other hand, you're talking about a people who are in need of adult supervision. So how does the person who is given both definitions for themselves believe, one, that they are actually the majority, and two, that they are full human beings and should be able to enjoy the fullness of what human rights are all about? That's a different kind of conversation, right? 
And I think that I think that when we look at it from that vantage point, there's like there's a war going on. And that war is truly about fighting spiritual wickedness in high and low places. When you look at it from that point, then we can find true success. Because the collective is more powerful than the individual. And collectively, if we're able to use our collective minds to figure a way out, then it's, it's who said it? It was um, the Earl Nightingale, I believe it was, who was talking about one of the greatest truths is that we become what we think of most of the time. And if, we, if we're able to think more and better and deeper and wider, we become successful. If we're able to tell ourselves that we are valued and we, we're worth something, we become successful. We become valuable. Right? We don't have to worry about the system telling us that. We don't have to worry about the psychosocial reality of that. But that matters, of course. But we have to tell ourselves. We have to believe in ourselves. Ultimately, we have to be our, our, we have to be our own heroes. We have to be our own liberators. And Yusuf, you always knew that you were valuable. You, 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 you say that, you know, quote, I knew at an early age that if I was not careful to protect my mind and heart, I could become attached to the process of getting my nourishment from a system that didn't care about me at all. Yeah. What, what were the foundations that were laid for you by your people, by your parents, your grandmother, you know, the, the, your community. What were the lessons that you learned, you know, before April 20th, 1989, that prepared you for the ordeal that you had to face? I, I kind of want to say that it is the exact opposite of everything that the system has taught us. But in a way, it was, it was, it was the naturalness of just being a human being, being being alive, being granted the opportunity to know that you matter, right? My mother always told me that I was born on purpose. My mother always told me that I was given multiple gifts, so much so that when I thought about my own life, I used to say to myself, like, what, what does she mean? I'm a graphic designer. I've never taught, I've, I was never taught how to draw. I can, I'm a, I'm a orator. I learned how to use my voice, even though I was able to be an orator, even in prison. So much so that they, they said, we want you to be our leader. I was able to use my mind constructively. And I think all of those things, I think, was because of the environment that I was being nourished in. The water that was feeding me. The ability for me to be able to dream with my eyes wide open. They call it daydreaming, but when you participate actively in that process, you begin to dream with your eyes wide open. You begin to think about things differently. You can project yourself into the future, knowing that success comes because you have to be able to see it in your mind's eye first. Because if you can't see it, you can't be it. All of those things were being impressed upon me, being told to me, you know, that I come from a mighty people. All of these things were being, you know, it's, it's funny because when you think about the communities that we are living in, oftentimes they talk about how your parents only have a moment with you, but it's the community 
that is raising you. It's the streets that is raising you. When in my community, there was value in there, right? There were people in the community that were children of people of great worth, right? I mean, here it was that some of my great friends were, you know, people who were the children of, 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 of Ilambe Brathwaite, right? Still friends of mine today, you know, getting the opportunity to continue my education, even though I was run over by the Spike Wheels of Justice by Ilambe's wife, right? I mean, very, Yusuf, remind us who Ilambe Brathwaite was. The great Pan-Africanism, Pan-Africanist rather, who I believe was a part of the Lumumba, mm-hmm. Patrice Lumumba, um, um, I want to say foundation, but uh, it was really, it's really like if you look at, if people Google him, you'll see him with Nelson Mandela in, a, in when he visited New York. You'll see him with uh, Fidel Castro. You'll see him all throughout the diaspora of Africa, right? Participating in connecting the dots, right? And I, and I say that because these are mighty people. And these, are, these people who are mighty are just one of many. They are so... It, it, there's, there's so much value that you can find, even in the elders in the community who encourage you and tell you things like, man, pull your pants up. i never forget, I was 12 years old walking down 125th Street, and one of the elders said to me, did you see yourself before you walked out of your house today? And I said, what are you talking about? And in my mind, I didn't say anything physically to him because my mother and grandmother and everyone made sure that I was given the idea of what respect was, that you don't talk back to your elders. But sure enough, because he told me, did I see myself before I walked out of the house? When he left, I looked at myself. Most of us, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we look at ourselves from the front view. Very rarely do we look at ourselves from behind ourselves to make sure that our, our, our shirt is tucked in correctly, that everything behind us looks presentable as everything looks in front of us. And I had to agree. I looked crazy. <laughs> and I never wore my, my clothes like that again. I never wore my pants like that again. And then I got to prison and realized where that came from. And I was shocked. You know, it's the same truth, I think, though, that we, we unfortunately do where we take these, these um, unfortunate circumstances and we transform them into something else. And unfortunately, I say unfortunately because when people come behind us, they don't know where those things came from, right? And so to call people out of their names in the black and brown communities, it becomes a term of endearment, right? But we have to use high language so that we can spark people, that we can activate each and every one of us to become our higher self. It's important. I'm in conversation with Yusuf Salam. He is the author of the book, Better Not Bitter, Living on Purpose in the Pursuit of Racial Justice. Uh, he was formerly part of the Central Park Five, now, of course, known as the Exonerated Five. <clears throat> Yusuf, we, we all know that, that being imprisoned means that one is confined, um, that, that one's movements are restricted, you know, but, you know, I've I've visited prisons uh, before, as I I mentioned to you before we started recording this interview, and and I I know how horrible, really, it felt to be there in the prison. It it was not a pleasant thing, 
but I'm, I'm but I'm imagining like unless you've actually experienced having to remain in that space for an extended period, you'll never know what it's like. So I, I want to ask the question: How does it feel to be in prison? Prison, I think, is the real life definition of what hell is. And I'm going to give you a description only because I want to juxtapose the reality of what I experienced as opposed to what Corey experienced. And I'm talking about the initial experience, right? Corey is just a few months older than me. But we went to two very different places. Those of us who've seen when they see us, they get the opportunity to understand what those two different places looked like. I was in a maximum A security facility for juveniles. Corey was in a maximum A security facility for adults. Were there killers around both of us? Yes. But in the juvenile facility, the worst thing that could happen to you is that you can get beat up. In the adult facility, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you can get killed. And I say that because when we look at these experiences, what we find very, very often is that prison is a place where people say you have to do the time and do not let the time do you. Because if you let the time do you, you become a monster. You become what prison is created for you to become. But once you do the time, you give yourself permission to transform this space into the most powerful thing that you can. And by that, I'm saying it's, it's all in your mind, right? If you're constantly being oppressed in prison, if you're constantly being harassed and beat up and tortured in prison, right? We know that there's a young man named Khalif Browder. A great film was created for him about his life, but a few years after he was initially arrested he ultimately took his life after being let out of prison three years after he was arrested they dropped the charges but he couldn't turn off the trauma the trauma of prison is very very real it exists even outside of the walls it is something that people sometimes take to their graves and i say that because i want people to understand that prison is a place where most people go to die before their actual physical death. I remember reading a poem by a guy named The Teacher. Very succinctly, he said, prison life in many ways can be likened to the womb. If the life inside becomes stillborn, the womb becomes the tomb. I can't, I can't just describe it as a nightmare on Elm Street kind of reality because even scary movies today aren't really that scary because you realize as you grow up that there's a cameraman that is telling the person okay that that scene was great oh that scene was not great we got to do it again and i think that in those in those ex examples you know to be in a nightmare to be in a real true nightmare every single day you wake up and you're still there Every single day you wake up and the tragedy of that nightmare is still something that you're contending with, that you're experiencing. At some point, you 
you unless you unless you tap into the higher vibrations, you never get the opportunity to dream again. And I think that 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 um, that I want to I want to say that task that part that that process, but I, I I feel like those words aren't aren't descriptive enough to really talk about what it means to tap into a higher vibration. Well, how, Yusuf, how do you manage to stay mentally free when you are physically captive like that and living in hell? Well, see, part of the process that I went through was I had to remember that I was taught how to meditate. And now I had to figure out how do I use this tool in this place where I can't you know, tell people, give me five minutes, 10 minutes, but I have to learn how do I meditate while I'm walking? How do I meditate with my eyes open? I can't put on white noise. I can't burn incense, even though there were things that we were able to figure out in prison. But how do I transform that experience into a truth that liberates me? And so meditation, I always tell people, is one of the greatest keys that you can use because wherever your mind goes, your body follows. You can have anything happen to you, but it's what happens inside of you that makes all of the difference. And quite often we succumb to the experience that's happening outside of us and allow it to damage irreparably what's happening inside of us. And we, and we use that in our lives. And they, what happens is that they say hurt people hurt people. And I think we have to give ourselves the ultimate opportunity to figure out, even though this is happening to us, how do we make sure it doesn't happen inside of us? In meditation, like I said, I prayed often, and I found that prayer is when you can talk to the Creator, and meditation is when the Creator talks back. And more importantly than that, it's about how deep you believe, how deeply you believe. If you believe that this too is an experience that you were supposed to grow through, then you grow. But if you think that you are going through something, that you don't realize that the creator has, you know, they say that they say man plans and God plans and God is the best of planners. When you look back and you see the path that you went through, you can see the plan. When you're going through it, you don't realize that there's an ultimate plan that allows you to be valuable and successful especially if you didn't do anything if you did something is different okay you got to you know if you do the crime you pay the time right but if you didn't do it and you know that to be true and you know god knows that to be true then you have to realize that this is a something that you have to grow through that god has given you the opportunity one for you to know what it is like on the inside and if you're, if, you're, if you're able to articulate it, right, because you become victimized, right? If you're able to articulate it, it's just what Dr. James Baldwin said. He said the victim who can articulate the situation ceases to become the victim. They now become the threat. You have to be able to give yourself and your people and your community and people in general the opportunity to find the door out of the nightmare, Yusuf, you know, prisons are called correctional institutions, um, which suggest rehabilitation. Uh, but you're, you're, you're suggesting, you're making the argument that, that prisons have nothing to do 
with rehabilitation. I'm curious as to whether you think prisons should have a future. Would you consider yourself a prison abolitionist? Should prisons be abolished? I think that prisons should be abolished. I think that if prisons in America were places that people went to have a behavior corrected, that, you know, when we look at the rest of the world, right, there's a film that Michael Moore made called Where to Invade Next. And if we look at that film, we get the opportunity to realize, one, that we are the youngest nation. And as the youngest nation of of people who have in some ways migrated to this country, immigrated to this country, been brought to this country in chains, um, we, we realize that the places that we came from, especially the people who are in power, they come from places where their prisoners are treated humanely. What if we treated our prisoners humanely? Now, I'm not saying, see, my idea of prison abolition is completely demolishing the institution of prison, but creating something that is balanced, creating opportunities of value, allowing people who might do crime or who might do a wrong to pay their debt back to society. And guess what? To be returned back to society, whole human beings. We are in a very punitive place in America where you're penalized over and over and over again, where you have to check the box so that people will know that you are a criminal. No one can come out of prison today who may have worked in the mess hall, who, who may have worked in you know, janitorial services or any of those things and say, hey, I've been, I've been in prison for seven years and I've been working as a food service worker for the past seven years. No, they want you to show that you have a gap in your work history. And now you have to explain that gap. You can't say I, I live in a gated community because that sounds nice, right? But the truth of the matter is that you were in a gated community with armed guards that made sure that you couldn't escape. And I think that that other part of, 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 of re-envisioning and reimagining what it is like to be in this nation, it gives us the opportunity to, to really figure out how we move forward. Because what we have is not, is not successful, it's not productive. What we have is hell. And if one of us is experiencing that, then all of us is experiencing that. Because we're all neighbors to each other. We all wake up to the news that we hear of the day. We all wake up to um, people making decisions because there are, many of us have been placed on survival mode. We have to live. In spite of the, the brutality that was all around you in prison, in, in spite of the fact that it was a horror show, that, that, that it was hell, in the book you also note moments of kindness that you experienced. You, you note some of the individuals that, that went out of your way to show you compassion. What did, that, what did those moments of compassion mean to you? Wow, those were the most humanizing expressions of love, of, you know, just everything. It is that, that reminder that when my grandmother wrote me those letters that, that were addressed to Master Yusuf Salam, 
when the officers who saw me and said, this guy is not supposed to be here, when the other officers said, I'm going to try to make his time as sweet and gentle as possible, leaving Intimates cookies and Tropicana orange juice in my cell. You know, those moments were moments of grace and mercy. And it gave me, it gave me a different view. It gave me the opportunity to look at this experience and, and, and try as much as I can to not let the time do me, to not allow humanity or my own humanity to be lost in this process, to not be bitter and embittered by this, but to become better by it. And I think that Better Not Bitter, my memoir gives me the opportunity to not only express that, but also I'm, I'm encouraging myself. I'm reminding myself. I am giving my children the opportunity and their children the opportunity and ultimately society the opportunity to understand those great truths. The truth that Mandela said when he talked about being bitter is like drinking poison and expecting your enemy to die. How do we come out of a situation better and not embittered or not bitter? We have to realize that this experience, partially we have to realize that this experience was an experience to create a survivor, right? Because God doesn't place more on us than we can bear. And if we're going through it, that we can grow through it. Like my good friend Les Brown says, when you fall in life, not if you fall, but when you fall in life, try to land on your back. Because if you can look up, you can get up. And we have to take our foot off of the break, the break of life that says, don't live. We have to live full so that we can die empty. We have to make sure that in the margins of life where there's darkness, that inside of there, we find ourselves and we can illuminate the darkness around us, dispelling and eschewing it all, shining our light on the world. Mm-hmm. It's important. You clearly have a very kind of philosophical bent. You know, in, in listening to you, I'm realizing, and in meeting you for the first time, I'm realizing that you have been gifted with a number of superpowers. <laughs> You've been gifted with a number of, of qualities that, that seems to have maybe enabled you to be as resilient as you are. You know, when you're, I'm, I'm listening to you tell the story, but I'm also listening to you or, or, or I'm thinking, you know, he's not just telling the story, he's looking at himself telling the story. You, you, you have this ability, it seems, to kind of detach yourself a bit from yourself. Uh, and, and I'm wondering how that might have enabled you to, to get through, you know, some of the challenges that you faced, particularly, you know, in, in prison. I think that that is, the, that is part of the secret, right? You have to... You have to detach. You have to be able to take yourself and transport your mind somewhere else. Because if you go through the experience and you give yourself 1,000% of the experience, it will harm you. It will destroy you. But if you mentally move your mind from the experience to something else, if I can look at 
the prison walls and only see the prison walls, then I'm in prison. But if I can imagine being free, what that memory was like, if I can imagine being in the world today, having gone through this awful experience and being better because of it, there's a huge opportunity of difference that you give yourself. A huge opportunity. And I think that that's part of, that's, that is the greatest part of the secret Right. They always tell you that if you can imagine it, if you, the, my, my good friend Les Brown says that your imagination is the precursor of what's to come. And if you can see it, how we cause the law of attraction to become true and real is that we have to marry that vision with the imagination of what it would feel like to have that experience. That's how you transport yourself. That's how you cause the law of attraction to be true. Even if you're going through a prison outside, right? I tell people all the time that if you're in college, if you're in high school, if you're wherever, we now are experiencing COVID-19 and we've been experiencing it for a while. If you can imagine a, a better place, you give yourself the opportunity to survive, to become a success story. And I think that that's part of the grace and mercy, right? We are, we are to tell people that it's possible. Not that it's impossible, but that it is possible, that we are possible, that I'm possible. And if I'm possible, then you're possible. And we give ourselves the greatest opportunity to be great. And it's always about that. It's always about understanding that a human was born, that that human was born and that human was one of over 400 million options. And God said, be to you. Every single one of us, God said, be to. And here we are. And so there's a miracle in that process that we were born on purpose and that we have a purpose. And so I think that all of that, all of that, it's just, it's like the, the more you remind yourself, the more you give yourself the opportunity to use life in a way that is meaningful and beneficial and, and it teaches you everything that you need to know. Yusuf Salam, Donald Trump played a major role in your case, he, he mounted a very public $85,000 public relations campaign that depicted you and the other members of the Central Park Five as, as animals who, who deserve the, the death penalty. You know, 30 years later, what do you make of that campaign? And, and how do you make sense of the fact that that same, you know, real estate mogul, Donald Trump, became the 45th president of the United States? Well, see, I had to meet evil before the world met evil. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that very purposefully, right? I had to meet it up close and personal. You have to understand that when you and the world saw that ad being run in New York City's newspapers, that ad wasn't created two weeks after we were accused. That ad was perhaps created almost immediately after we were being vilified and victimized by the system. And the worst part about it is that it caused the system to drop the ball because now through technology, we get the ultimate play happening in our minds. It's the same thing when we see big headlines in, in the Central Park Jogger case that said DNA evidence in the case, big, bold headlines. And when the DNA evidence comes back and it doesn't match any one of us in very, very smaller headlines, you see DNA didn't match. But the problem is this. 
that the 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 negativity of that imagery it stays in the minds of the people and so people say to themselves well they had to have done something why is that part of people's belief system because implicit bias tells us that people believe that if you're black or brown that you are guilty and you have to prove yourself innocent forget what the system says the system the law says you're innocent until proven guilty but black and brown people have never been seen as innocent until proven guilty we've had to fight we've had to claw we've had to do all kinds of unimaginable things to try to get free and in this truth what do we see my late attorney the late great bill kunstler he said you can indict a ham sandwich he said it's not about the truth when it comes to law. Oftentimes it's about who can tell the best story. Who can tell the best story? It's the people who have the capital. Who doesn't have capital? Many black and brown bodies. And so the story has to be understood with that timeline that all of these things are interconnected. That redlining happens to be a, a, um, a, a, a door to the shootings on, on the south side of Chicago, the poverty that we experience in the ghettos of America. But at the same time, too, we give ourselves permission and the opportunity to decide differently. And we become the roses that grow from the concrete. So I'm saying all of that to say that Donald Trump's four-page ad, it called for the reinstatement of the death penalty, specifically for our case. They were trying to make us into modern-day Emmett Till's. It was the whisper into the darker enclaves of society that said to the people who have done this, who are used to doing evil, that they should do to us what they had done to Emmett Till. They, they published our names, our phone numbers, addresses in New York City's newspapers. People could show up at our doorstep at any moment in time. People sent us hate mail telling us that they wanted to kill me and my mother. A little while later, Pat Buchanan wrote in the paper, why don't we just take the eldest one and hang him from a tree in Central Park? This was the atmosphere that we found ourselves in. This is the atmosphere that is being described in another great book by Natalie Byfield called Savage Portrayals, which captures the headlines of the day regarding the Central Park Jogger case, describing how they use these headlines to turn us into monsters and animals and beasts how they used the ability to draw us in a way that made us look like monsters. That when we got to prison, we were meeting inmates for the first time who were saying, you don't look nothing like they, that, like, like they depicted you. And this is what they do all the time, every time. But see, what happened, I think, which is more important, is that what gave Donald Trump the opportunity, he, it, it, it became an opportunity because of white supremacy, white male dominance. It became an opportunity because of white privilege. It became an opportunity because they rushed to judge us like they often do and give us no opportunity to have the truth be told. And so Donald Trump's ad is still vibrant and alive, not only in his mind, but in the minds of people who support him. It is the truth that we find ourselves in in America when we find and look at the, the, the insurrections and 
you know, the, the challenges that happened at the beginning of this year, right? It's that same truth that tells you that those people probably won't be uh, sent to prison even though they may have to go through the prosecution phase just because it's part of the process, you know? I remember when I was looking at the Emmett Till... Um, see, that's another thing. That's, that's part of technology. I was just about to say the Emmett Till trial. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the Emmett Till trial, just like it's not the George Floyd trial, right? But when I was looking at the trial and they gave the, the, the case to the jury, there's a moment if you ever get an opportunity to see this footage where they're talking to the jurors after the verdicts are handed down. And the verdicts, of course, are not guilty. And they talk to one of the jurors and says, okay, what, what took you so long to come back with a verdict of not guilty? This juror says, we knew we were going to come back with a verdict of not guilty. We just wanted to take a soda pop break to make it appear as if we were doing our jobs. This is America. This is where we are. Yusuf, you and you know your brothers um, who are part of the Exonerated Five have had really an experience that, that very few people, I would argue, in this world experience. We're, we're very, very familiar with the trope of the hero who crashes and burns and becomes the pariah. In very few instances do we see examples of the pariah or the once pariah becoming a hero. You have had that experience where your story is now, you know, being recognized and and you are being feted, you are being celebrated. You have become, you know, a, a bit of a celebrity. You have been vindicated you know, in the last number of years. I'm wondering what that experience is like to, to go from being the pariah to the hero. I think it's a, it's a very traumatic experience, but it's also a very graceful experience. It, 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 you know, in Islam, we always say, you know, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, all praise belongs to God, Lord of all the worlds. And I think that when, when you look at the opportunities to be able to see the mercy, the grace, the blessing, oh man, other people see it. Other people get the opportunity to say to themselves, wow, look at God. But those of us who've gone through it, we really get the opportunity to see it. I never forget, there's a moment in the documentary, The Central Park Five, you know, we used to go around to the theaters and watch it with the audience. And quite often the audience may not have known we were there, but we would be in the back. And there was a moment in in particular where Raymond Santana reads his false confession. And he looks up after saying the words that may have sound something like at approximately 9 p.m. or 1700 hours, I think was the more correct, accurate description. At approximately 1700 hours, me and a group of my colleagues began to walk south. And of course, that's not the exact wording, but, you know, those of us who can revisit the documentary, The Central Park Five, they'll be able to see this, what I'm talking about. But what we heard in the room every single time he read his false confession was the audible gasp that the viewers gave 
And that gas was a, it was a powerful thing because people said to themselves, how did we believe this? In 1989, we thought that this case was a slam dunk. We thought that the police department did the best job in the world. How did we believe this? And so to be able to have that, that collective embrace from society, that psychosocially we matter from society is important and profound and necessary. You know, to, to, to have once been standing up in front of an audience and that audience wanting to throw eggs and tomatoes and other things at you that were probably more harmful to that whole audience now wants to hug you. I never forget I was in an audience and we we just stepped off stage and one of uh, a couple walked up to me and and the woman shook my hand and asked me if she could hug me and I said yes and then she hugged me and then she just was sobbing uncontrollably. Her husband, noticing my uncomfortability in that moment, he said, this is just her way of saying sorry. And I had to appreciate that and accept that because so many people believed the lie. They thought that we did this. And then they realized we didn't. And so that grace doesn't happen often. It doesn't, it doesn't happen for many people often. But, you know, I work with the Innocence Project and the Innocence Networks of America, and I get the opportunity to be a part of the process of liberating people, of freeing people. You know, some people have done 40 decades. I'm sorry, four decades. Hopefully not 40 decades. <laughs> some people have done four decades, and a whole lifetime goes by until the truth is found and the truth isn't found through oh you know the system made a a mistake there was some paperwork that wasn't filed or this or that no they find out that through dioxyribonucleic acid the thing that we all know as dna that these individuals didn't do it hundreds of people have been freed through dna one person in prison is one person too many you know, but this process of being able to have your humanity restored, the process of being able to live again, to dream again, I think that that's what this all means. That, that value that is placed back in life that allows you to, you know, not only take a pause in the moment and be able to listen to the, the birds around you, be able to listen to nature, be able to walk the streets and breathe free air is important. Yusuf Salam, it's been a, an honor and a privilege to, to speak with you. Thanks so much. It's been an honor and a privilege to speak with you as well, and I appreciate it. Thank you as well. That was CBC's Adrian Harewood in conversation with Yusuf Salam, one of the Central Park Five, who served six years and eight months for a crime he did not commit. He continues his work with Innocence Project and his book, Better Not Bitter, Living on Purpose in the Pursuit of Racial Justice is available now. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. The only thing better than buying a great book is buying one from a great independent bookseller. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation and take a moment to rate and review it in your podcasting app. I'm told that helps spread the word. 
I also want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>